Welcome to the second season of Think Arctic, an award-winning podcast powered by GCI that explores the issues facing the Arctic and its stakeholders. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Holly Noland. In this episode, we continue our series in conjunction with the Arctic Institute that highlights women who work and live in the Arctic. Today, we're speaking with Twyla Moon, a research scientist with the National Snow and Ice Data Center and Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Twyla studies Earth's glaciers and large ice sheets. She's also the co-founder and co-director of the Wheelhouse Institute, a nonprofit focused on supporting visionary women leaders across the arts, sciences, and communication via networking, peer-to-peer teaching and learning, and cohort building. Thank you so much for joining us, Twyla. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Holly. It's my pleasure. You have uh, quite the resume. Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and and your research in the Arctic? I think that's a good place to start. I'm a glaciologist, and as you said, I'm now at the University of Colorado Boulder. Earlier, I spent time in other universities around the American West and also worked at the University of Bristol in England. I focus on primarily the Arctic. I do think about the Antarctic some, but my research tends to focus on the Greenland ice sheet and also thinking about how the ice sheet interacts with the atmosphere and the ocean and implications for ecosystems and uh, other parts of the Arctic system. I also think a lot about the Arctic system more broadly and doing work to synthesize uh, our scientific knowledge about the Arctic and make sure it gets into the hands of policymakers, decision makers, the public. So what kind of drove you to study uh, big ice and its effects on the climate? Well, I first discovered the glaciology when I was an undergraduate in college and I had an opportunity to travel and studied abroad in Nepal, and that was the first time I ever visited a big valley glacier up near Kanchenjunga, one of the largest peaks in the world. And it was summer, and that long glacier ice was melting. You could hear drops and rocks and really motion, and I felt like, wow, this is a part of the Earth system that feels like it's living to me. And I just instantly fell in love and knew I'd be a glaciologist. And then as I was transitioning into graduate school, that was around the time when we were when we were starting to get some of our first satellite data back that could look at the whole Greenland ice sheet. And I was able to work with some of that data and it captured my imagination, just the ability to look at such a vast area of ice and understand how it was moving and changing and making discoveries about how it was changing really rapidly that upended some of our earlier expectations of how ice sheets might be slow and not change very quickly. So you talked about your first experience um, seeing in a, a glacier and an ice sheet uh, up close and personal. Can you talk a little bit about some of the others that you've seen um, with your own eyes out while you've been doing your research? Yeah, I've been lucky to see a lot of ice. I've spent a good bit of time in Alaska up on the Juneau Ice Field, both teaching and learning there, 
helping to put in instruments at Leconte Glacier, which is near Juneau, the Alaskan capital. And I've also um, spent time in various places around Greenland. And of course, I like to visit glaciers when I'm just generally traveling. So I've seen ice uh, around the US, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, in um, my current home state of Montana, up in Canada uh, through the Glacier and um, Jasper and Banff National Parks, visiting them in the Alps um, on vacation there. So I've been really lucky to see ice in a lot of different locations, um, both big and small. And every time it's a really magical experience. And sometimes um, it can be pretty sobering experience, too, as you realize the changes that you're getting to see. Is there one in particular that's had the biggest impact on you? The one that I still find, I, I find myself telling stories about is the Athabasca Glacier. And this is a popular tourist destination right at the borders of Banff and Jasper National Parks in Canada. And I had visited there in um, around 2000 with friends from college. And we had hiked right up onto the glacier and had an incredible time and threw snowballs and ran around and it was wild and celebratory. And uh, my husband and I were traveling through that area again a decade later. And I was super excited thinking we would do all the same things. And we arrived there and instead there was a sign that that was where the glacier was around 2000, the last time I had been there. And now it was off in the distance. You couldn't hike up onto the end of it or spend your time throwing snowballs. So that was really dramatic to see that change and experience it so personally over such a short period of time. Now, you mentioned a little bit about uh, satellite data. So how does satellite data help in examining these large ice sheets? Satellites have absolutely revolutionized our ability to understand the large ice sheets, Antarctica and Greenland. You can imagine before that, you could travel to those ice sheets so you could see very teeny little parts of them. Um, you could fly a plane over them. Again, a way to see just little swaths of space. And uh, I mean, you have to remember, Antarctica is a continent and Greenland is the largest island in the world. So these are vast spaces. And putting up satellites, that was the first time we were able to look at the full swath of, of these um, ice sheets. And we started to get repeat measurements of how, how fast the surface was moving, um, how the elevation of it was changing, how thick it is. And it was some of those early observations in the early 2000s of um, velocity where we realized, wow, areas of these ice sheets around the coast are changing dramatically in just one or two or three years. Whereas before we had thought that these ice sheets were so large that it, they, most of the change might happen over hundreds or thousands of years. So they weren't a big part of our discussion when it came to sea level rise and thinking about climate change on political timescales. But satellites gave us the, our first view of 
the wide swath of changes around the ice sheet and really woke up the community to how important these ice sheets are and how quickly they really can change. We know, um, you know, that warming temperatures are are changing the Arctic ecosystem. But can you talk a little bit about how that affects us living south of the North Pole? Absolutely. Yeah, it, we often hear about the Arctic ice diminishing or melting or disappearing, and it sort of feels like maybe the Arctic's disappearing to pinpoint, you know, off beyond the end of our vision. But actually, exactly the opposite is happening. As all these changes are occurring in the Arctic, we're feeling the footprint of those changes more and more strongly here in the U.S. and in other places that are at low or mid-latitudes. And we're seeing those um, downstream effects in a whole variety of different ways. When it comes to land ice, so um, the Greenland ice sheet and other glaciers and ice caps in the north, as we're melting that ice, that is one of the main things that's driving sea level rise. And we're seeing the influences of sea level rise all around the U.S. coast as um, we get increased um, flooding uh, areas that might have just flooded once a year now flood multiple days in a year um, we're really challenging our infrastructure so we see it in our ocean levels which along with flooding also cause increased coastal erosion and um, inundation of salt water into freshwater resources which can be uh, really influence our water quality and become a water quality problem and other impacts of kind of rising these ocean levels along our shores. And then when we see other elements of the Arctic system changing, for example, as we are thawing permafrost, that thawing permafrost releases carbon and methane into the atmosphere. And those are some of the gases that are um, main drivers of the, the atmospheric warming we're seeing. So we're seeing more warming around the planet in part because of these changes that are happening in the Arctic. And similarly, sea ice in the Arctic, um, we have to remember the, the, the Arctic Ocean, you know, the North Pole is really one large ocean, just the opposite of Antarctica, where the pole is a big um, pile of grounded ice. But in the north, that bright sea ice uh, really helped us out by reflecting uh, energy from the sun back into the atmosphere because it's bright and white. But when we're losing that sea ice, suddenly the ocean can absorb more of the energy and heat from the sun, and that's warming our oceans and also warming our atmosphere. And because our, our oceans and our atmosphere are so well connected um, across the globe, those are changes that we feel far away where we are. Thank you so much. That was, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're definitely right. A lot of people think about it as um, kind of far off and they don't think of, of the connections um, right here. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the Wheelhouse Institute and, and really how it's helped you and, and your work? Yeah, the Wheelhouse Institute came about through a long-term uh, almost lifelong um, partnership and friendship I've had with my co-founder, Nina Alder, who's an accomplished artist. And she and I have found that we have learned so much from each other um, by learning about the skills that uh, each of us uses, what, what I apply in sciences and what she applies in the arts. 
uh, have really helped us become better and more successful professionals. And we've been really interested in finding ways to help women become um, more successful leaders and fully embrace uh, their roles um, in, in, as leaders. And some of the research that has come out recently has uh, shown how valuable peer-to-peer -peer mentoring is and how important it is for women to develop close networks of contacts in order to move into leadership positions. And so we wanted uh, to create a space that would bring together small groups of women so that they can share their skills, um, recognize their own skills, and um, create and provide connection points across the arts, science, and communication. And it's been really wonderful. I've met um, women, I mean, we're quite young, but already I've met women who have helped me in editing in important presentations that I've given. And um, some of the women we've connected have put in grants for creating films uh, that talk about climate change and present them in new ways. And um, we've seen public arts come out of partnerships that have formed between women involved in Wheelhouse. So it's been really exciting to get it started and I'm really um, thrilled about seeing it move forward. We're gonna be opening up applications for our next cohort in spring and it will be really exciting to continue to see um, the, all of these women grow individually and together. That's great. Yeah, that was my next question was how can people get involved? Um, is it geographic, like based on geography? Well, Wheelhouse Institute is uh, based in Montana, but women from all areas uh, can participate, uh, apply to join a cohort, and also um, support the work that we're doing. So. Um, people can find more information at our website, and as I said, we're young and we're growing, so people can also um, sign up to get our newsletter and continue to participate into the future. So I want to also ask about, um, you know, I, f I feel like um, science and and research has, has tended to be a, a heavily male-dominated field. Um, what types of challenges have you faced being a woman in this environment? Well, I think some of the challenges um, that women face broadly and that have probably influenced my career along the way uh, include things that we hear about like microaggressions, the sort of elements of bias that many of us have, but it, we're not very aware of the sorts of things that research have, has really shined a light on in regards to for example, differences in how we describe uh, successful women versus successful men and the, the words we use um, and who we think of when we think of, oh, someone to ask to present on this topic or present on that topic. Now, I will also admit I am a pretty stubborn um, person and I think I've spent a lot of time pretty willfully ignoring um, any of the challenges that I might have had to overcome uh, with a real eye on the future. And I like to recognize that there are really important ways for us to continue to support increased uh, women's participation. And that includes becoming aware of the, the challenges and our own personal biases, 
but also remembering that we've made really important strides and that there are more women in Arctic sciences now and you can find them leading projects of every different sort, field projects, um, satellite data projects, um, big projects, little projects, and everywhere in between. So um, a lot of really important progress has happened as we've become uh, more and more aware of the problem. And I think it's a, now something, if you have a, a panel of all, all men speaking, it's not just the women in the audience who are scratching their heads. It's, it's the, most people in the audience saying, hmm, something doesn't look quite right with this. And I think we can right. really celebrate those kinds of progress, steps in progress. Do you have any advice for other women that are trying to break the ice ceiling in the Arctic? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things is putting in the effort to make connections uh, with other women. There are really great organizations like the um, Earth Science Women's Network and others that are bringing women together so that you can ask other women for advice or support, um, hear from their experiences, but also don't hesitate to reach out to women either at your institution or at other institutions and say, hey, I would really like to connect with you. Um, most people and most, most women, but also most people in general are, are really excited to help out other people. and. Um, are usually interested in providing advice or support. And I think creating those networks are really fundamental and, and also doing other things. For example, I have an email folder that's just called Awesome Box. And I, when I get an email, maybe it's a paper getting accepted or someone telling me that something I said really made a difference for them, I put it in the Awesome Box so that when I'm feeling glum or like I'm not making very much progress, I can open it up and check it. Women tend to, to not recognize their, their skills and their successes very well. That's why, for example, they'll wait to apply for a job until they have 90% of the skills desired, whereas men are more likely to apply with maybe 60% of the skills desired. So I think it's really important for women to find ways um, to be able to remind themselves that they're accomplished, they're experts, and they really have a place at the table. Those are great tips. I think I'm going to, uh, after we get off the phone, I'm going to have to start my own awesome folder. I, I love that. Highly recommended. Well, Twyla, thank you so much. This has been really great. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like our listeners to know? I think I'd like to just reemphasize that for people even far from the Arctic, there's so much rapid change happening there. It's a really valuable place to be paying attention to right now. We're seeing warming up there that's more than twice the global average. So change is happening rapidly. But also to remind people that the changes happening in the Arctic are really fundamentally tied to our own actions. And um, so we don't want to sit back, put our feet up and just watch all this change play out. We are really active players in determining how much change um, happens in the Arctic and how rapidly. So each of us should take time um, regularly to think about what are we doing to, to influence um, the rapid changes happening around us. And those are both changes in um, 
cultures and the involvement of people and indigenous people and in work in the Arctic and also changes in the physical environment. Well, Twyla, thank you so much again for joining us. We, we appreciate it. And thank you listeners for joining us for another episode of Think Arctic. Stay tuned in the weeks to come as we continue to interview more women featured in the Arctic Institute series, Breaking the Arctic's Ice Ceiling. And as always, you can find our regular podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spreaker. And if you enjoy what you hear, please like, review, and share our podcast. Until next time. Oh, <laughs>